Today, we travel beyond the wind door. As before, expect spoilers for all the movies we cover. We could talk more about really any Del Toro film, but that's true. That, we that's are... a different podcast. Today we're talking <laughs> yeah. about what's next. I don't know what's next. But we are halfway through the list. Yeah, we are <laughs> halfway hours. through the list. What a pace! <laughs> oh, I mean, it will get edited down. Let's move swiftly along. Trying to have fewer digressions. Number five, The Orphanage. There are children who can see a hidden world whose imagination opens their eyes. This one was another like with reservations. This is another one that I'd be willing to watch again with someone else. In oh. spite of this also being uh, a foreign movie with all of that entails, I enjoyed this one more for certain values than I did The Devil's Backbone. This may change on rewatching The Devil's Backbone now that I have more stuff in my head to go to it with. Major points in its favor were an engaging mystery, intriguing lore, and centering on a female protagonist. Again, I, I t tend to like female protagonists more than I do any other kind of protagonist. <clears throat> Tiger's eye. Um, Will you stop bragging about your girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> Never! Hey, that's his wife. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> the reason why... It is where it is. And again, I could I could shift places of the devil's backbone, but it's the ending. 
And I know that, Toby, you're probably going to go on to say some things about this because... Greg, it is not my turn to talk. It is your turn to talk. So please carry on. All right. Uh, I ended up having to talk with Sharon a little bit about this because I know that she is particularly fond of this movie and I didn't want to be destroying any sacred cows or anything like that. I needed to get her take a little bit on my own visceral response to this movie. I pause here because obviously discussing the ending means spoiling a major component of the movie, but in addition to spoilers, discussing the end means bringing up the topic of suicide. So if anyone wants to tap out now, skip to the next movie to avoid any triggers. The way the ending is framed suggests that Laura made the right decision in killing herself to take care of the ghosts of Simone and the other children. To me, it still feels like an immense tragedy that could have been avoided if it had not been for the ghosts themselves. The children are not outright cruel, but they did cause, as we find out later, the death of Tomas through their actions. And in reaching out to Simone, also set events in motion to cause his death. And the symbolism there says to me that they were doomed to continue to repeat this cycle indefinitely unless stopped and it dovetails a little bit with like just like the previous movie orphanage is asking what is the nature of a ghost what is a ghost how the ghosts are framed in this story affects my read on the movie if the ghosts trapped there are sentient spirits if they are just normal people without a physical body then they deserve to be taken care of and put to rest by Laura. But if they are just echoes, just wounds that are unable to heal and do nothing but repeat the actions that they did in life, then Laura's death is only a greater tragedy because they are an unending well of need that can never be sated, all id and no reason or conscience. Okay, Greg, I'm, I'm going to have to cut you off here because I got to say... Your understanding of the ghosts being responsible for Tomas's death is throwing me for six, whatever okay. the fucking phrase is. My interpretation of Tomas's accident mm-hmm. is that while it was a result of an activity that he was doing because of ghostly prompting, or maybe just because no, no, no. they were... No, no, no. Sorry, you might be confusing Simone with Tomas here. Tomas was the Tomas boy was with, the the with the mask. The one who was... Uh, he was disfigured. The, the other children stole his mask, and he didn't want to leave the cave without ah, it. Okay, so he drowned yeah. in the cave. That, that was the original tragedy that led to one of the caretakers poisoning all of them and what made them ghosts to begin with. Okay. Because, because, Tomas, yes, because Tomas was her son. All right. Yeah, okay. I, I, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I got that cleared up, because holy shit... I thought you were, like, barking up a very strange tree. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, I, I, I needed to go back and try to figure out some of the elements of how the sequence of events played out here, too. I know that Alex had to explain it to Toby at one point because he was confused as to the sequence of events. But I got it. The point is, is that they were playing a game with Tomas that had unfortunate consequences, Mm-hmm. which means that there was something similar going on when the ghosts were trying to reach out to Simone, where he 
ends up putting on the mask and pretending to be Tomas and setting up the mystery, the scavenger hunt, in order to get his mom to find him. But she panics at the early stage of it, accidentally traps him in that place. The ghosts do not deliberately kill Simone, but they do set up a sequence of events which leads to that tragedy. And so at the end, when Lara discovers what has happened, it's very difficult to not look at what happened with her is that she kills herself in despair. Like, that's probably what it would look like to the outside, being that the husband doesn't have any idea what happened. And this whole time, he's been trying to convince Lara, let's just get out of here. Nothing good can come of it. Simone is dead. Let We try to find a way to move on with our lives. And without the narrative context of what Laura discovered, it just seems like maybe she killed herself because she couldn't go on. The movie frames it as he finds the Medal of St. Christopher and therefore knows what happened. But that's a little bit of a leap there. And one could argue that he could have come to that conclusion, but only we know for certain that she did the right thing as told to us by the movie. And we're supposed to therefore see that something good came out of the tragedy, that the the children are being cared for and are no longer stuck in this cycle of trauma and being unable to heal. Under different circumstances, it just didn't work as well for me as it might for some. I mean, it's on the list because um, it's a Del Toro produced movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I assume, worked with the writer director on this one, and mm-hmm. it's it's certainly not the kind of movie you would expect Del Toro to make himself. Mm-hmm. But you can definitely feel his flavor in the backgrounds. Absolutely. Um, and I know you and I have had this discussion on the Discord that like sometimes movies put you in a bad headspace. Mm. And you just have to sit with it. And Mm -hmm. this would be that movie for the list. It's extremely difficult to put someone in a bad headspace for quote-unquote entertainment Mm -hmm. and uh, make it feel worth it. And this movie is the most obvious example I can think of that does it. I know there are others, but this is Mm -hmm. the one I remember. Mm -hmm. Mm. Part of the problem, uh, Toby, I'll let you speak in a second, but part of the problem is that I have a real-life situation of someone that is not capable of learning and moving on. It's an ongoing issue that I'm dealing with. It's a family member. And so therefore, again, we're dealing with something that is a very personal reaction in terms of like me having to learn for myself that this is not someone that I can help and attempting to do so will only harm me further, which is why Laura's choice at the end hits me as hard as it does. And I don't really feel like talking about it more than that, but that's... Totally understandable. Toby, save him. Save your partner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I won't really go on long about this because, frankly, my own response to this is not really either that interesting or that constructive. I would summarize it as, this is a film I admire more than I engage with. Mm. You said uh, earlier that Alex had to sort of explain the ending to me. And that's like, he did explain the sequence of events, which helped to clarify some things. 
I had got most of it already. There was mm-hmm. like one or two pieces, but it was more to me. My issue was not, I currently cannot figure it out. I had figured out most of it. Mm-hmm. In the moment, there was just some pieces of it that were a little, like, I felt like something about my brain didn't take in the key details that were necessary to put the thing together. Like when she uses the key to open the door and go Mm -hmm. down into the basement, I thought what I was seeing was a common horror trope where she was going out of the door that she had come in through, but Ah. saw the key there and there was some sort of supernatural thing that like, oh no, the space is warped and there's a space downstairs. It is hard for me to hold it against the film for me having a mistaken interpretation. Mm. Yeah. But all I can say is what my own experience was, which is that the sequence of events leading to Simone's death was a bit muddy for me, which distracted me a bit more and kind of lessened the impact of the ending because I wasn't with the film as mm. much as I really needed to be for it okay, to you, hit. You, you were thrown out of it then and that, okay, yeah, I get it. And it's not necessarily all comes down to the ending. Like, that would be insanely unfair. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, this may be unfair, but I found that I didn't necessarily click with the main character. Or I was with her so much based on everything to do with, like, her connection with Simone and everything with that. But... Her connection to the kids who are now ghosts was stated by the film, but never really felt like it was really core to it. You never you ra- never saw enough. Like you had the part at the very beginning where they're playing the game and you mm. get the impression that Laurel might have been the one that was counting off with them. But because it doesn't explain what you're seeing and immediately moves on to adult Laura. Mm. One of the best sort of moments of horror tension for me is when she's doing the counting off game at the end. Like that mm-hmm. one, oh, yes. heart effective. in mouth the entire time. Very effective. And that's why I say, like, and it has so much of what I appreciate, the sort of connection, love, all of that. And the solution being for her to take her own life is something that fits with the story being told because mm-hmm. we are operating on rules that are outside of like our reality and also just being real finding the body of your son that you had been emotionally invested in for the best part of a year and putting it together that you created the circumstance that led to their death that you were there and heard the moment of either them dying or the injury that led to their death, all of that would be enough for anyone, even if that she didn't sort of have some sort of sense of engaging with the game and trying to do this in some way, which you can interpret she did, interpret she didn't. But all of that is more than understandable for the impulse immediately to be what it was. Mm-hmm. And the the final moment of the husband finding the sort of medallion, medallion which is the sense of, you know, he is able to understand, because it goes back to the uh, support meeting where that woman said that I got a sense of them and it just helped me to feel as if they were okay. Mm, you get okay. the sense that what that's what he is getting at that moment, that ah. retur- receiving it, having it 
be returned is some sort of closure for him mm. that he is afforded. So, like, there is so much that I do think works for this. And I am so sorry, Alex, and especially Sharon, for not clicking with it more than I have. But yeah, like I say, I appreciate more than I engage. And the last thing I will say is it's sort of weird that at the end, the husband has that sort of memorial dedicated to his wife, absolutely, his son, absolutely, and then just the orphans. And it's like, uh, okay, so... He had that connection, but why didn't they get named? Like, you, it's like, do you want to look into the like registry to see what their names were? It's like, nah, just the orphans. Like, <laughs> I also feel guilty for not responding to it the same as others or drawing different conclusions. In The Devil's Backbone and Crimson Peak, the two other Del Toro movies I've seen with ghosts, the spirits are not put to rest through the death of the protagonist, but rather the death of the antagonist. This flips the expected resolution on its head, and it also creates this idea in my head that perhaps Laura was either doomed to die, or something supernatural brought about her death. The movie tells us that the reason Laura survived was because she was adopted before the tragedy with Tomas went down. It's not beyond the pale to look at it more through a Final Destination lens, or to look at the orphans like the twins from The Shining that they wanted her to join them, and what they wanted was not necessarily a good thing. But this is not my story. It was written by Sanchez and directed by Bayona, and I should not second-guess the story they wanted to tell, especially since they come from a different cultural context. This, uh, I, I haven't watched this one in years. I don't really have any like more insights, but I will say there's a movie that is very similar to it, um, it's not quite as well executed, but it's also a little less like, oh, gut punchy. Is um the others with Nicole Kidman? Oh yeah, yeah, I've seen that. That that yeah. is on my list. I am definitely going to watch that when I have an evening uh, where I'm not watching something else with Maureen yeah. because getting yeah, getting yeah. her to watch horror movies is a little bit more of a trick. Give, mm-hmm. Yeah, give that one a try. This is so far the only movie that I rewatched among the ten of them after having listened to the podcast Alex and Sharon did with it back in 2018. Five years ago, I had put that episode in a drawer, waiting to see the movie, and never got around to it. To be clear, I still stand by everything I originally said in the recording. It was an honest response, including in that it didn't hit me on all cylinders the first time. Amusingly, I find myself reconsidering it in part because I can see so many topics and elements in this movie that contributed to New Century. We've got Alex's various explorations of ghosts, the structure of the Devil's Backbone being similar to that of Let Them Go, the similarities between Carlos and Miguel in Tiger's Eye. There's also components of gothic storytelling that I had not considered, which I already have a greater appreciation for because of New Century. Some metaphors went completely over my head, like the way the relationship between Carmen and Jacinto is a metaphor for the Spanish Civil War. Hearing that explained to me by Victoria Grieve figuratively made my head explode. Or the way that the bomb seems to harness these metaphors to become a genius loca, something that can assist Carlos. I didn't even realize that it was Cesaris' ghost that had freed the boys from captivity thinking instead that it was Santi. I have to be careful, though. 
I cannot rank this movie based on the fact that I like Alex and Sharon and Victoria explaining things to me. I also cannot judge the movie based on the fact that I like the ingredients that were used to different effect in other media that I like. It feels weird that part of it comes down to the way those two movies end. The end of The Devil's Backbone is bleak, but hopeful. The end of The Orphanage is melancholy, but also tries to have a message of wounds healing. And yet, due to the way my brain works, one of them is preferred to the other. All that taken into consideration, I changed my earlier ranking, placing The Devil's Backbone over The Orphanage. And I also upgrade my ranking from like with reservations to just liked. Sure, part of me wants to put it higher, especially since it's beloved by a number of my friends. I'm never going to deny that it's art. But the fact that I needed parts of the movie explained to me affected my enjoyment of the film. There's a difference between really liking a film and having that appreciation deepen through explanation, and having the explanation be needed after I'm done watching. The movies I love best are the ones I don't need explained. I might miss individual details. In a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once, there are a lot of details that can be missed, but I can still grok the whole either because the movie goes maximum effort to make it clear, or just because my brain is able to find the pattern. Yeah, I All like right, on to number four. Uh, number four, yes. Purge 3. We played a lot of Purge games this evening. We have just one more. It's called Mommy's Choice. Which one of you will survive this year's Purge? The soul of our country is at stake. The purge targets the poor and the innocent. The Senator's going to win. She's going to make real changes, too. It is a night that is defining our country. It's time to do something about that, Senator. The purge has to come to an end. You take a lot of risks, Senator. I have to. I was the only one in my family to survive. What made you apply for this position? I almost did something on purge night some years back. I want this night gone. I want men in all these rooms. We got eyes and ears on everything. All right, let's begin. This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the annual purge. At the siren, all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 hours. Your government thanks you for your participation. Someone betrayed us. This is not a drill. We are on our own. We have one goal right now. Survival. Senator, come with us. Gentlemen, understand what's at stake here. Maybe it's our duty to help protect her. Here they come.
Blessed be America for letting us purge and cleanse our souls. Join me as we eliminate evil. Purge This one, I have to say this before you get onto it. Mm-hmm. Put a penny in the jar. We picked this one because we know you like political thrillers because you watch <laughs> The West Wing so much. <laughs> I mean, I, it's not quite a penny in the jar because there's it's no... It's the act- Arlington horror on yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it doesn't have any characters from The West Wing. It doesn't have any uh, lines from The West Wing. It, there is definitely, as you say, plenty of right, politics. just let her have this. Okay, so right. few people get to put a penny in the jar that aren't us. Just let her have this. Fine. <laughs> you can't take it away from me. It's my lucky penny now. <laughs> uh, here we jump two categories to strong like. But with the caveat that I will likely never watch this movie again because it's too good at its job. Damn it with faint praise. <laughs> I can't not like this movie because it's fucking brave to get this close to reality. The movie almost doesn't even jump us to 20 minutes into the future because the Purgeverse, especially now in 2023, feels frighteningly close to our current reality. Euphemism is dead, and the movie doesn't need metaphors. The only monsters are people, people that you and I can see in our own daily lives. Election Day is built off of reality, and from what I've heard of some of the sequels, it only keeps following this path the deeper it goes. The latest one was about immigration. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not just looking at how twisted white supremacy and those with power can be, but how the contagion affects even the disenfranchised in the form of the black teenage girls, and the people from other countries that want to emulate the U.S.'s toxicity. Like Get Out and Candyman, Election Day forces us to look at our own history and how it's affected the here and now. I respect it too much for daring to go there, which is why I couldn't possibly give it a lower rating. But it's too deep a look into the abyss for me, and I'm not the one that needs to learn from this story. I know it too well. Yeah, uh, we went with, uh, okay, so we went with the third one because it's a political thriller and you're you. But uh-huh. also, the first Purge movie, it's not very good. No. It's like, a, it's like 80 minutes of a home invasion movie and not a very good one. Mm-hmm. With it's like the a, first draft. Yeah, it's not very good. It gets pretty good for the last 10 minutes, I'll give it that, but mm-hmm. that's not a movie. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I didn't dislike the original Purge. I haven't technically watched the original Purge, but I have seen reviewers discuss it, so I know a lot of the important story beats and have seen a number of clips. Based on what I've seen and what I know, I would rate Purge 1 with a green meh. I definitely agree that the last 10 minutes are part of what I enjoyed about the overall theme of the story, but even other parts of it feel revealing and are worthy of consideration. The idea of Ethan Hawke's dad being the kind of guy that has sympathy for the black man the Purgers are chasing, but not being willing to stick his neck out, feels like the lukewarm liberalism that movies like Get Out directly speaks against. This dovetails with the fact that his more progressive son won't stand for that, speaking to a generational divide. On top of that, the Purgers feel very grounded in what I expect this sort of toxic world would bring out in some young people. 
The leader feels like those chodes that are entitled to the privilege of whiteness and prosperity, as well as folks that idolize the fucking Joker. The Purgers don't even have any sympathy for each other, as they never react to the death of their own. Also, the fact that all the Purgers die feels cathartic. Like, this is the ending I would have wanted to see from The Strangers, another home invasion movie with psychopathic young murderers. Now, maybe that's not being fair, because it feels like I'm reviewing not the film as a whole, but parts of the film that might have been better used in the sequels. And yes, I know there's poetic irony in me saying that, considering what I just said about the ingredients in The Devil's Backbone. If you want to hear a better commentary on the first three Purge films, listen to Alex and Sharon discuss them on School of Movies. But earlier, Alejandro was talking about how Halloween 78 works best as a vibes movie, and to me, that's how the elements of Purge 1 work for me. Less as a good story in its own right, but rather a few good ingredients in a decidedly average stew. There you go, Alex. More food metaphors. Purge Anarchy? Pretty good. But that one's more of like an action movie. It's basically like, what if there was a Punisher kind of mm -hmm. guy in the middle of the Purge? Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, is that Bishop? Like, because I figured he was in the previous one, and I found out he the was. The guy but... with the gruff and the muscle car? Well, in the third one, he's the one who is essentially leading the attempt to assassinate. This uh, is the other one I haven't seen, so I can't say yes okay, or no to yeah. that one. I yeah, do uh, know sorry. for a fact that the uh, politician that they're trying to save in the third one is in the second one. She's more of like a flavor background character, mm -hmm. but she's in it. Oh. Yeah, now she basically becomes a uh, Hillary Clinton analog at, because it was it basically came out at the same time, uh, which mm. makes... What timing? Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. As near as I can tell, the character played by Frank Grillo, who was the bodyguard in three, did show up in two. Uh, and the the guy that's the head of the resistance movement in three, he was also in two. He was the one that the white suburban family saved in the first one. So oh. there is there is definitely oh, okay. a through line going on there. Right. Uh, well done. You you made a good you you made a relevant horror movie, and I love movies that have something to say about the culture we're in. You freak me the fuck out. Sorry, can't watch your movie again. Ow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's one of the nicest things you can say about a horror movie. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful. I'm never gonna watch it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is actually, I think, the first one that I can tell where you and I overlap because this mm -hmm. is my number four as well. Mm -hmm. It has that sort of same barrier for it not going higher because it's like this film horrifies and enrages in equal measure for me it's not necessarily that the scenarios in it the sort of in terms of the physical dangers that you encounter on a very you're not keeping the bigger picture sense those are frightening circumstances to be sure but they're not exactly the most sort of scarily like shot sequences and there's even a certain amount of like camp stuff being done in it which is as much as the teenagers are really disconcerting in what they imply it's hard not to be impressed by their fashion sense at the very least like <laughs> the the movie's style its aesthetics do mm. a good job of building into making the purgiverse i guess feel like a real thing the it's sort of <laughs> i feel like this is almost like bioshock infinite done 
better. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting call. Yeah, no, I can I That's, can see an argument made for that. See, Alejandro, my weird tangential comparisons sometimes work. Like, so this was a this was a hit. The other one was a miss. But uh... <laughs> a moment ago, Toby used the word camp to describe parts of election year, and my brain got kind of hung up on that a bit. To make sure I was understanding the word correctly, I went on a Google hunt and found that defining camp is complicated because it's associated with art, and art is something ever in flux. Hell, art itself includes many different kinds of media and may mean something slightly different for each. On a basic level, camp is defined as exaggerated, ostentatious, and theatrical. But from there, there are some that say that camp is an element of bathos, and therefore a way for a piece of art to take the piss out of itself. There are others that suggest that camp isn't used to make fun of something, but rather to express serious topics in terms of fun, artifice, and elegance. People often suggest that the best parts of the original Resident Evil 4 are the campy bits, like the Merchant and Count Salazar, that people like laughing at and with. But parts of Al Pacino's portrayal of The Devil's Advocate could be considered campy, and yet taken absolutely seriously because John Milton loves being theatrical and having fun. I take election year deadly seriously, and yet at the same time understand why Toby says parts of it are campy. The teen girls and the tourists reveling in their enjoyment of the purge through use of props and paraphernalia. Even the scene in the church is campy because of how overdramatic it is, and yet the drama feels deliberate. It's a part of the ritual for these disgusting people. There is no fun to be had in my appreciation for this film, but sometimes the camp is text and not subtext. It's everything that this film is about that is just horrifying to, as you say, stare into the abyss. I also think it's really creative because like the number one criticism of the first film is it's like, huh, this is like a premise that's really rich for potential, but they tell something that's really boring and Mm -hmm. overdone. And as they went on, they just did more with the premise for it. Like how in the second film, I think there's a beat about how someone is getting revenge for someone who ran over their son the day before the purge, but the son didn't die until the evening of the purge. So on a technicality, he gets off scot-free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, fact- a, it's a huge fucking legal fuck-up to like yeah. be like, all crime is legal except these ones we don't want you doing. <laughs> yeah, it does the premise well, especially at this point where it's in full stride and just them going through the city and you just see the this eclectic range of scenes that are them deciding to not necessarily over-explain each one. It's just, what can we do where it's just a fleeting glimpse at something messed up that feels like people just indulging in the madness and mm. kind um, of uh kind of makes me think of uh, escape from new york in that way not seen the, that the movie that i thought of that is the more fun version of purge 3 the little less hard-hitting seriousness to me was hotel artemis uh, mm. yeah. the one uh, with dave batista yes that was all right and uh what's her name um jody foster as the uh, the nurse running the hotel mm. But it's creative, it has its finger on the pulse, the fact that it 
opens with a thing saying like there's riots in the capital and i go like oh god but in this one it's meant to be people protesting the purge but the fact that they call that riots and um, then at the end unfortunate framing yes yeah it's one of those things where it's like you you want this film to date bad but unfortunately much like its closest connection to new century arlington it just becomes more and more relevant which we do not want yeah all right moving on number three jaws There's not an explanation for this one other than you hadn't seen Jaws. What the fuck is wrong with you, Greg? <laughs> well, I hadn't so... seen it till since last, like until last year either. So you're okay, Greg. All right. I didn't expect to be as sucked in by this movie as I did. I thought it was, as referenced earlier, it's going to be too old for me to get into, full of outmoded cultural paradigms. But holy shit, the characters of Brody, Quint, Hooper. Even the mayor was more complex than I expected. I know this is, by some, considered to be a seminal work of horror, but to me, I don't see that. What I see is a Spielberg film, and it has layers and complex relationships and many things to say besides Killer Shark. Um, It is very strange to see, like, advertisements for Spielberg movies for a few years after Jaws, where they're, like, trying to sell how scary of a director he is. Mm -hmm. Like, there's some scary director where it's like, E.T. is so scary. It's like, that's really not the movie he made. What are you doing? (laughs) No, but as a kid, uh, someone on the Discord at one point was, like, saying, what was the first movie you saw? E.T. was one of the first movies I saw. As a little kid, that was scary to me. <laughs> but uh, so, as I mentioned earlier, holy fuck, the John Williams soundtrack that was super fucking epic in places. And the thing is, is that as far as the John Williams bigs, the ones that I'm most familiar with are always the movie main themes Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Superman, E.T., and Jurassic Park. Because of the width and breadth that the movie goes to, I ended up hearing the music more than I usually do. Most of the time, to me, it's just background texture. And every now and then, something really punches through, like Adagio and D in Sunshine really did. 
There are exactly five scores that I would be able to recognize without context, and they aren't all the ones you would expect. James Horner with Aliens, Jimmy Webb in America with The Last Unicorn, Wendy Carlos with Tron, Elmer Bernstein with Ghostbusters, and Hans Zimmer with Mission Impossible 2. Anything else? You're lucky if I remember more than the main theme. But here, it felt more like a serious component of what we were seeing. And for the most part, this movie had my attention the entire time, especially after the big three get together, Brody, Quentin, Hooper, oh, yeah. playing off each other. Boat Buddies mm. is great time. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not like overall a horror movie but spielberg's mm-hmm. horror techniques are on fucking point mm-hmm. like he's got the pov camera like an evil dead except like a decade before mm-hmm. for the shark he's got how uh the barrels as a concept just so that we can see the shark without having to see much of the shark mm-hmm. like it, it's all ace it gives the shark a presence because i think they were the first to know we cannot rely on showing this shark mock-up you know it doesn't scare us it's not going to scare them it uses so much to establish it and the like the shots that everyone knows the dolly zoom Mm -hmm. which for ages i thought originated with this moment which is the perfect representation of the world falling away from your feet and you're just sinking and like everything about you is disconnected that's I think probably one of the most uh, brilliant horror shots and innovative. Did not realize that it was technically not the first film to do that. Mm. From what I can tell, unless there's sort of other ones that are a bit more obscure, but mainstream-wise, Hitchcock's Vertigo uh, Ah. did that shot. It uses it to simulate, like, the perception of, like, space, of, like, Mm. the height just growing exponentially. But... In true Spielberg fashion, his treatment of it doesn't emphasize the horror of space. It emphasizes the person. It is the human element that Spielberg excels at because he gets people. He knows how to emotion. Uh, (laughs) So he gets to use that shot and make it a POV shot without actually being like from his point of view. And That, that's like, basically the last thing I have to say about this movie is that any movie that's got me paying so close attention to character nuance that it distracts me from analyzing the movie, that's a success. If it's got me feeling more than I'm thinking, that's a sign that the, the movie is resonating with me. I got one more thing I, I have to do. Mm-hmm. Farewell and adieu to my dear Spanish lady. Farewell and adieu, my fair ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. (laughs) And then, of course, they completely changed the tempo for that other song, which is also fantastic. What more can we say except it made us smile, you son of a bitch. (laughs) I know. Maybe you're surprised we spend six minutes talking about Jaws in comparison to everything else. But honestly, I don't have much more to say. It's a great film. 
And the reason we liked it is pretty much the same reasons everyone else liked it. If you want a more detailed discussion, the School of Movies episode is right there. All right. Number two. Number two. I have come here from the mainland to investigate the disappearance of a young girl, Rowan Morrison. That's her name. You know her? No, never seen her before. You suspect foul play? I suspect murder. We don't commit murder up here. We're a deeply religious people. Where is Rowan Morrison? <laughs> You wouldn't want to be around here on May Day. Not the way you feel. Where is Rowan Morrison? It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. Hail the Queen of the May! You simply never understand the true nature of sacrifice. And here is where I feel like I'm going to get into a big punch up with uh, Toby here. Oh, no. um, my number two was The Wicker Man. On Toby's list, The Wicker Man was number 10. So I feel like I need to get into why I enjoyed this movie as much as I did. And Please, please me... tell us your wrong opinion. <laughs> Which are very easy to have, by the way. Yes, exactly. So the thing is that maybe I didn't necessarily enjoy this movie the way others enjoy it or the way others other people think about it so i was already familiar with the overall concept of the wicker man i've seen someone else dissect and review the 2006 remake with nicholas cage and why it's as ridiculous and over the top as it is because the director's insane <laughs> <laughs> This was one of the few movies where I dug a little deeper in order to learn how it was created, and found out that even though the screenplay of The Wicker Man was originally inspired by the David Pinner novel Ritual, the movie is not a one-to-one -one adaptation of that novel. The screenwriter, Anthony Schaefer, wanted to create a horror film that was less dependent on violence and gore, but also one grounded in pagan mythology specifically centering on the idea of ritual sacrifice. To this end, he did a lot of research to get the details right, not just on pagan rituals and beliefs, but also authentic music. One of their main resources was the seminal work The Golden Bough, a study of mythology and religion that has influenced writers like William Butler Yeats, T.S. Eliot, James Joyce, and D.H. Lawrence, as well as other worthies like Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, Ludwig Wittgenstein, and Camille Paglia. What I'm saying is, is that Schaefer did his homework, and that comes through in the movie. What it comes down to for me is that this is fuck around and find out the movie. This is a Christian cop 
coming into a community that he has no idea what he's dealing with, thinks that he has all the power because he's in a position of authority and he is the dominant religion in the world that he comes from, does not get at all what anyone else is putting down because he's so determined to look at it from the perspective of there is something that this community is hiding from me. And even I could see from an outside perspective that there was, at the, the book that this is based off of is called Ritual. There is a ritualistic component to everything that the community puts him through. And they are on some level telling him exactly what they are doing. And he cannot break out of his own paradigm to realize that. If he at any point had done something differently than what he did, then he would not have been an appropriate sacrifice for them to give to their green man. And the green knight. The green knight, yes. Oh, I haven't seen that yet, but I'm very interested in seeing it based on what everybody else has said. It also, because he was coming at it from a, a Christian standpoint, it'd be like, oh, wait, so you're offended that they're teaching sex ed to kids? You're offended that they're, <laughs> that they're, they're more hedonistic than you think that they should be? You're kind of an asshole. And <laughs> like, I know that I'm supposed to be terrified of like, if this was an actual cult, you know, if this was, for example, Midsommar or something like that, my, <laughs> the, the framing of it would be entirely different. But to me, this is like, oh yeah, the Christians kind of went through and killed a whole bunch of people that had pagan beliefs and wanted to turn them around to uh, their way of thinking, a very unfun way of thinking for the most part. Uh, if you're going to sacrifice him in response, go to. I, I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. <laughs> Do it. No problem. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I feel no sympathy at all for your main character. Therefore, this isn't really a horror movie to me anymore. This is pagan communities getting back some of their own, as far as I'm concerned. And I... I get, like, I understand the framing of it is supposed to be, in, in a differently framed story, this would actually be disturbing. You could even argue that parts of the Purge election year already provided that counterpoint. While the scene with the new founding fathers was not inequivocally Christian, it's hard not to notice the symbolism of their sacrifice taking place in a church with further trappings and dogma that would not be outside the realm of Christian fundamentalists. The New Founding Fathers may be more fascist than anything else, but they are still using words like godly duty and sin and baptism. And it was here that I was going to include a sound clip from election year, and I can't. I can't stomach it. I don't want to have to listen to that part of the movie again. Not even to make a point. To me, that was actually invested in the symbolism and the pagan rituals of the time and sort of being able to see it play out as it did. This really more hit my, oh, I really enjoy alternate mythologies rather than the horror buttons or anything like that. 
like that. So well, th this one is about this. This one's kind of in a similar place as to the exorcist mm -hmm. um, in that the exorcist is, has things it thinks the audience is going to find scary. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe those don't really translate to a modern audience in a lot of similar ways. This movie assumes you're not necessarily as much of a fuddy duddy as this cop, but you're on his side. Mm -hmm. And uh, holy shit, am I not? Yes. <laughs> like, I, to a certain extent, I can see why they made the changes they did in the 2006 version. Nicolas Cage is still a cop, but was apparently chosen a long time ago to be a human sacrifice to benefit the neo-pagan cult. And his desire to solve the mystery has less to do with his religion or opinions of paganism and more the fact that his ex-fiancee summoned him to find her daughter. And also kind of making the whole experience be more terrifying in terms of like, oh, the movie ends with the people of this community going back to the mainland and trying to find more uh, people to sacrifice at the end. But the problem is, is that... It sort of goes they... against what, like, the whole point of the ending is, right? Yes, in the exactly. Sense, yeah. The, 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 the remake clearly did not understand the origins of what this original story was built off of well enough. It was mm. trying to go too much into the horror aspect. You know, it, it's basically the Eli Roth movie with Keanu Reeves' Knock Knock. Oh, that's what, what that yeah exactly that's what the the 2006 remake feels like to me except obviously Eli Roth pushes it far more into the oh no we got accused of things by women you can't trust them when they say that they've been raped because clearly they're lying yada 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 for like all your kind ye are false so in kind of a similar way to Jaws, um, The Wicker Man is a movie that's pretty infamous in terms of like what happens in it. Mm -hmm. And everyone kind of feels like they know what happens in Jaws. Mm -hmm. But when you watch it, it's really like the plot summary is not a substitute. Mm -hmm. no. Like, oh, oh, a guy gets uh, sacrificed. Yeah, but you then you, if you just hear, oh, a dude was sacrificed, you miss out on all the conversations about theology that just mm -hmm, make yeah. it so meaty. Yeah, yeah, it's a vibe movie, like as well that you, uh, like the way I described it, it's like, oh, heck, this is like a musical in so many ways, <laughs> like, and yeah. the music's great. There's a sincerity to it as well. Before I get into my whole thing, like, I have a question, Alejandro. What you said just now kind of indicates this, but did you know where it was heading before yes. you saw it? Same. I knew how the 2006 movie ended, and so I presumed the 1973 version would end similarly. I would be fascinated to hear the perspective of someone who didn't know where the film ends up. Because you can tell that it sort of treats it as this reveal of like, what? The girl was never kidnapped and like this was all a test and everything? Like, I would be fascinated to see like what someone who's like oh man what a reveal and everything like that and i am not suggesting that it falls apart because you know the sort of plot synopsis uh, it's ridiculous but this film is a like masterclass of its field it's like the prototypical pastoral pagan horror and it's something that manages to do that without resorting to a lot of the cliches it like really does just embrace being its own thing 
and trusts that if it pursues it with enough certainty, then that will be enough. And it is because, as you say, the whole thing of going through is just remarkable. And Christopher motherfucking Lee in it. <laughs> In yes. like, uh -huh. he, I swear he's like just channeling the Bond villain he played one time. Mm -hmm. Well, that was within the same year. Like, I think he played uh, Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun, like, I think a year after this. And it does have that, like, oh, you've come to my island where I am in complete control. And, <laughs> but... In this one, it, like he is the most compelling, charismatic figure in all of this, and everything he says is just... It gets it. As you say, from a modern perspective, it, you find yourself just really coming on board with uh, him and like the sensibilities of all of this and being sort of like, this lead character is a massive knobhead. Like, <laughs> Said with the proper British disrespect. <laughs> yes. Now... Those children out there, they're jumping through the flames in the hope that the god of fire will make them fruitful. Really, you can hardly blame them. After all, what girl would not prefer the child of a god to that of some acne-scarred artisan? And, and you, you encourage them in this? Actively. It's most important that each new generation born on summer I'll be made aware that here the old gods aren't dead. And what of the true god? to whose glory churches and monasteries have been built on these islands for generations past. Now, sir, what of him? Well, he's dead. He can't complain. He had his chance, and in modern parlance, blew it. I think what I find tricky with this film is that I come away not really sure how to feel, or rather how I'm expected to feel, mm -hmm. because differences in sensibilities between modern and back then aside you can tell that like the main character is presented as this tragic protagonist in that sense of like the audience is well aware of exactly what his defining characteristic is and why it will be the thing that leads him to his downfall and they point it out at the end it's like look you are only our choice to sacrifice precisely because you fit all of the criteria that we're looking mm -hmm. for. And if you had not done any of these, then I don't know what they would have done. Maybe they would have been like, oh shit, do you know any other virgin <laughs> cops who are willing to investigate or something like that? The film isn't about like exploring that possibility. The point is that he is this. It is all leading to that. So the film is a little bit, uh, this guy's not great. But it also has this ambiguity about Christopher Lee's character of he is well aware of the history of how the ancient rites were brought up because the company needed to motivate the local workforce using this. And over time, like, and I think he talks about it as if his grandfather used it purely like as a method of lubricating the workforce and making them amenable. And over time, I think Christopher Lee's character and his father actually bought into the belief a lot more. This is something that you pointed out on the Discord, Greg, which is an unintended theme of many of these films is belief and mm -hmm. the power of belief and it for good and for ill. Even a film like The Purge is all about like yes. 
you know, this misapplication of faith, but also this belief in the like veracity that indulging in this action will actually do them good. And one of my favorite moments in that film is when you see this wife who is crying over her injured husband and she thought that by purging and acting on the impulse of not wanting to look at his stupid fucking face anymore, that she would feel better because that's what everyone has told her. But she doesn't. Brilliant, brilliant detail they add there. And mm-hmm. that's what like this is. We're looking at it here. But the implication that cop protagonist says, which is like, if this doesn't bring your crops back, what are you going to do then? Like in next year, he says like, they'll have to sacrifice you because they'll only like grow bigger and bigger in terms of what needs to be sacrificed. I don't know if that meets the logic of what they choose to sacrifice or not, but like this is kind of the weird thing because as much as it's like, uh, cop, uh, he's being an asshole, the end sequence has always kind of made me uncomfortable and it has always made me just very uneasy and I get it it's a horror it's meant to make you feel uneasy but you're just seeing the slow agonizing build up to a man just approaching the wicker man and going in and burning alive but not even like burning alive but like seeing the flames rise I I don't know how to feel am I meant to be like yeah this guy's an asshole fuck him which like is a read on it I just come away from the film very confused in that sense. And I think this has been an abiding thing. Like, I think I first found out about this film maybe when I was probably too young to really engage with it. And I just found out about the synopsis, saw a clip on YouTube, and it probably stuck with me. And that feeling is just a sticking point that is difficult to dislodge. But I know it's wrong thing to do with a lot of analysis is to put too much fixation on the ending, but mm-hmm. that ending does, it is just stuck in my craw a little bit. And I've never been sure of what my own feelings are on this as a story and that as an end point. Like I thought that by sitting through and watching it, it would disentangle that, it would settle the feelings. And I appreciated so much of what I saw leading up to it, but that didn't disentangle. And I think that's just like what it is. I don't necessarily need every story to have a neat and clean moralistic judgment of like, what should we feel at the end of this movie? But I guess with this one, it's just like, I can appreciate it, but it just leaves me in a position that I don't find often, which I in a certain way I prize because this is a rare movie where in this day and age I still don't know what I think about it, mm. what I feel about it. Interesting. Um, oh, Alex is looking at me from the mirror. Quick, uh, uh, say something else. Um, uh, okay, okay. Uh, it was mentioned earlier, Midsommar, clearly taken some notes from this movie. I think that movie sucks. Yes. Midsommar is a bad movie. I think the movie that uh, from a modern perspective would be the best sort of like spiritual successor would actually be the Vavitch. Yeah, that one is good. Yeah. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm actually not a big fan of that one. I think that one is a little too slow for my taste, but it is on a sort of a similar, like engaging with faith versus paganism level. I mean, it's a well-made movie. I'm recommending it. (laughs) Mm. 
These really feel like Marmite films to me. Just that sort of like, you're either going to come away and be like, oh, that's so good. Like uh, when I was working at that shitty cinema, uh, the cinema's fine. It's the people who own it who are jackasses last year. We actually did have a screening of The Wicker Man going on and that sold out. Every Everyone loved it. They couldn't wait to go into a cinema and see the boobs on the big screen. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, yes, it is a little purient at times in a very 70s way. <laughs> Look, I'm not going to say that I'm better than anybody else, but uh, have a deep abiding appreciation for the nude ladies of the 70s, gotta say. Um, <laughs> I liked I liked the aesthetic. I was said with such class, but um, <laughs> like just the right amount of sleaze as well. <laughs> Yeah, there were a lot of ways that sentence could have been worse. (laughs) Part of the reason why that scene was as effective for me as it was, aside from the prurience, is, again, the ritualistic aspect of her tempting the policeman and asking her to join him in a very... Like, if we were to do this differently and it wasn't um, humans with other humans... There is a, a, a way about it in terms of trapping them within the rules of their own society that is almost very fey. And so therefore the idea of the fey... Alejandra had such a face just then of not uncertainty as to like, where you we, were going. Are we, are we going into bestiality with this comparison? Oh, no, okay, no, no. Not. It's no, no, better. no. Continue your point about the face. <laughs> yes, no. In terms of the, a lot of Fae stories are specifically about the Fae have to obey certain internal rules to their own culture in terms of not being able to lie or like, oh, okay, if you give a gift that it needs to be returned and all sort of thing like that, and they can entrap humans very often within those rules if the humans are not aware of how that culture works. So that's part of how it plays out to me, particularly in some of the places where the cop is feeling lost in a very alien world to him and, like, nothing makes sense. Uh, like, at one point, I think there's a bunch of... Uh, just random young people coupling out on the lawn and it goes into slow motion for him and there was something about that that made me feel like that's kind of the aesthetic that it was going for in terms of how the main character felt to address what you were saying about the ending toby it could be argued that maybe having it drawn out like that was meant to imply, oh, maybe he's going to be rescued at the last minute and everything's going to be fine. But nope, instead, you you see that he comes to an untimely end, as does happen with horror movies from time to time. Sometimes there is a downbeat ending and there is no last-minute save. The alternate version of the way Get Out played out would have been very unfortunate for our main mm. character. But in those circumstances, there is a rise and fall in terms of like if we're using the roller coaster analogy. Mm-hmm. This is just 
it keeps at the same angle of descent. Like there is never really a moment of any external hope of salvation. It just sort of, if there is the sense of hope, it's not coming from the film. It's coming from like an internal thing of like, he's not dead yet. So maybe he won't die. Yeah. And because it's so difficult to see this film without that knowledge, all it means is that like, well, I know that we get to this point and it just draws that out Mm. And I've rarely seen a horror film that draws that feeling out as much as that. Maybe you can make arguments that some other horrors that end with like rocks fall, everybody dies. You know, the whole film is in essence that drawing out of the sort of downward descent. But with this, it's just like, no, we're going to keep you in the moment. He's fucked. Uh, we got like 15 minutes and... Uh, yep, we got to burn something. We built the whole fucking <laughs> wicker man. Mm. Yeah. Also terrifying for the actor to actually be in that thing. Because like, it was on fire at the bottom. It was yeah. on fucking fire. And they just had to pull him out before it got mm. too bad. I can't really argue with this. As I certainly felt a little of that myself. Wondering if there was going to be some final denouement. And not getting one other than the vibes of the Wicker Man burning down to an old medieval tune, celebrating the coming of summer, finally collapsing in flames to reveal the setting sun. Perhaps it does speak to the power of belief. None are moved by the sergeant's arguments, but also his own faith will not save him. It doesn't answer if the pagan gods have power here, and if the sacrifice will work. It leaves the viewer in uncertainty. And as Toby alluded to earlier, perhaps that uncertainty is, in fact, the point. I apologize for this because this is basically like a cinema sins thing to be like talking about. But like, I do have to question why he is not like, and I get it because like he's surrounded, he's on an island, there is like really no sense of it. But he's in a thing made of wicker and you never see of just sort of, like, banging against it. Like, just, like, any attempt of acting. And this is sort of a bit like what you were saying, Greg, of, like, you know, when the characters just don't act in the way that you would. And it's because what is happening here is the two faiths being combated against each other. He has to convince them that their beliefs are wrong and Christianity is right, and he can't. Sounds like that was a bad faith argument. (laughs) Well played, sir. Thank you. I do find myself wondering if I would be more bothered about it like you were if it was a female protagonist. Because goodness knows, I don't like it when moments of death and terror are drawn out in other horror movies. But let us move on to the one movie that we all unequivocally agree is the best. (laughs) The old ways. Why did you go there? I told you, it was not safe. Do you know these people? The man, he is her son. He helps. The woman, she practices the old ways. She's a bruja. They don't believe they can let you go. They have seen something inside you. A demon. I don't know what the heat is. You can't understand what you see now. This is 
insane. This isn't you. It's what's inside you. There is no demon, Christina. My name is Christina Lopez. I came to this place to die. This is honestly, I think, one I want to show to Maureen. I wrote up bullet points for almost every other single movie because I needed to be able to outline the good parts and the bad parts. I have no notes. This is, <laughs> it, it's, this is why I, have, I put it in as a secure love because I'm sure that someone might argue that there might be untidy parts of this movie, but I was focused on this movie from beginning to end. It had the mythology. It had the complicated main character that is clearly has some shit going on with himself and is able to combine self-actualization as a part of the narrative in terms of the whole, the monster is not the monster. Honestly, I, I should have seen the signs. I did not get that the, the evil spirit in this case was taking the form of little boy. I was so invested in the movie that I missed the signs and I was like, fuck it movie, you got me. Damn it. <laughs> I figured... You just watched this today, didn't you, Toby? Yeah, I watched it this morning because you know what? I was planning on watching it last night after The Purge is a double bill, but you know, I saw a different movie instead. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one uh, I put on. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, back so, to this movie. Which back is to amazing. this movie, because, like, you know, that's a completely different podcast. The movie in question was Funeral Parade of Roses, a Japanese art film centered around the 1960s gay subculture of Tokyo, and is loosely based on, of all things, Oedipus Rex. Far beyond the goals of this episode, so let's move on. This one I saw today, and I had that impulse. I was like, I'm pretty sure that the kid is going to be the thing because it's approaching or it's mm -hmm. been there, but no one else has acknowledged. But it only occurred to me when she sees it in the sort of wood, uh, sort of midway through, and they really space it out because you forget about the kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. But I, I love about the reveal that they don't do the thing that you're expecting them to do, which is like, but there is no kid or like that, you know, he's been dead for seven years or something <gasps> like that. Uh, they let the moment hang and then they just ask. Do you see him now? And that's all you need. And... Here's the crazy thing. There was a bit near the beginning of this film that did sort of bug me because I was very much aware that, like, these people are completely on the level. They are here to try to help our main protagonist. But there is so much that is not said that really could help just sort of grease the wheels a bit more and just, like, ease that. I know that the whole point of this is that this is someone who is unwilling to accept help but there i think just one moment of like her saying once you know they get this thing out of me like and this is really early on like way before she starts to believe in what is going on she says if they cure me of this thing or whatever will they let me go and her 
cousin, I think it's yes. her cousin. Yeah. cousin. Her cousin just sort of looks down and lets that hang and steps away. Now, I can see what the motivation of that character would be because you read into it, that is the that cousin who has internalized this feeling of being abandoned by this family member mm-hmm. and that the notion that she will leave again is painful to mm-hmm. her. But at that point, it really would have meant a good deal. It's like, yeah, no, you can go. Like, <laughs> but but they don't but, because and then like that simple unacknowledgement, like just sort of has that. And you know what? Like that really in any other film would be more of an issue for me. But fuck that issue because I can see all of the character motivation for it, and the rest of the film is fucking brilliant. It's well, that's so let, fucking good. Let let me let me put in another counterpoint: is that yes. The feeling of the co- the cousin feeling abandoned is definitely a, a, a point, but if we take it back to some of the older stuff that this is based on, not just uh, in terms of fictional text, but in terms of actual text, I can definitely see the cousin looking at her and going, "Is this you speaking, or is this what's is this what is inside you speaking? Trying to bargain, trying to do anything in order to like figure out how to escape." the trap that we've put you in here because this is very literally an exorcism yes and and it's much uh, better than the exorcism yes i had that same thought as i was halfway through this movie it's like man this is just better than the exorcist like Mm -hmm. (laughs) there are just so many moments that were excellently done in terms of going to exactly the right place because it isn't just about this is an evil spirit that has taken over your body and it obeys these rules and it's because of this one element of human nature. It's as much a manifestation of the sickness that is within you already. And when she's getting her cousin to film what they're going to do and she has to admit to the audience through the camera, I came here to die. That's really difficult for her to say, but it's indicative of the multiple levels on which this movie sits. That there is the supernatural, but there is also the internal damage of just a life lived and how you overcome that if you can overcome that. Is the demon a demon or is it a metaphor for her addiction? It's both. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. This is what the best stories are. It's like, hey, well, is it literal or is it all of that? It's like, it doesn't matter. It's both. Just shut up. It's fictional. (laughs) We tell stories in order to apply to real world events. Shut up. (laughs) But uh, So like what you're saying, Toby, I don't know how you found out that these people were on her side because the entire like first 15 or so minutes of this movie is trying to wrong foot an audience member who's expecting an abduction in a foreign land movie. I think think mine was just meta awareness of this is a film that has been recommended to me and has been said And we so wouldn't much. recommend something as lame as, uh, oh, the, we abducted this girl and now we're going to torture her. Yeah. So <laughs> it, like, it just feels like, you know, okay, it also I, I can see. That, um, uh, the, the man actor, I can't remember his name, 
God, he looks so nice. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just got a really friendly face, and everything about his face when he's, like, forcing her oh. to drink goat milk is, like, <laughs> it, it's, like, I gotta do this. I gotta do this. I don't it's... I don't like making you do this, but it's gotta happen. Yeah. I was just double-checking. I don't know what else he's been in. Um, Javi was bit. played by Sal Lopez, but, well, I haven't seen anything else that he's been in, unfortunately. It looks you like he's been have. Yeah, exactly. Um, he was apparently in American Me, which was an Edward James Almost vehicle back in the 90s. Uh, mm-hmm. Not the one that I'm most familiar with uh, Edward James Almost for, though. But yeah, absolutely. They picked the right people to cast this. The only mm-hmm. reason that I knew going into the movie that the monster was actually real and, well, <laughs> real for some value of real. But the point is, is that the uh, the Bruja was actually on her side was because I had heard Alex and everybody talking about this already. I had forgotten some critical parts of it, but that's that I, I preferred that going in. I was like, okay, I've listened to enough of this show to get a sense of this is a movie I would really enjoy, but I didn't remember the key parts of it in terms of the sickness within her and the meaning of the boy. All I remembered was the critical masterclass line of I'm a motherfucking brewhop. That one deserves to be a, as much of a legendary line as like the best of them, honestly. I'll be like, back. It should be right up there with the fucking Terminator. I mean, just like other entries on this list of just like, you know, swallow this or smile, you son of a bitch like in the thing. Get away like, yeah, from well, her, you bitch. Or like the thing where it's like, yeah, well, fuck you too. Like, you know. <laughs> Just that catharsis. Uh, it's astonishing that the movie finishes the mm. exorcism plot and then starts up another third act. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh my god, like this is this There's finale still like 15, is great. 20 minutes in the Wait, movie. There's what, like what's, 25... what's left? <laughs> That's what I loved. I was like, mm-hmm. oh wow, she's sort of like studying and learning this. And then once the idea of like the old ways will die with her, and I was just like, mm-hmm. ooh, is is this going to be? And then the moment where you see the main character, I knew it as soon as like she had her eye injured, like even before yeah, the, yeah. the Bruja had died loose. And I love that scene of just like asking her because up to this point, she has been this enigmatic figure and there has been some narrowing of the gap between them. But just the moment she asks her name is the moment where the entire person that is under all of that ceremonial makeup is the wrong word what would like face paint guard uh, yeah. yeah that that comes through not just because you hear her name for the first time but because like she just got hmm? like you know just that humanizing moment where beforehand we only saw her as the protagonist sees her as this sort of daunting figure and then when you see her get injured it's like she's getting the eye like the Bruja has the eye and like... Ah, because it's um, in, in order to wield the power, the, the symbolic sacrifice. Exactly. And so that she can see uh, to the beyond with the mm-hmm. eye that doesn't see the reality. There's nothing about this movie that is like, I would say, revolutionary. It is just an absolutely gobsmackingly good remix of a bajillion things. And I fucking love it. Remember how I started this conversation? It has to have a good story... It has to have characters I enjoy watching on screen. It has to use symbolism well. This movie does that. It does it, it in does. spades. The moment where you see her with 
the eye patch essentially and the the paint on i was like all i could say is just like oh my god she's so fucking cool yes <laughs> but even at the same time she's going up to her friend carson and going look i gotta warn you we're not really good at this <laughs> <laughs> great that was line. So good. absolutely fantastic and I love that, like, the monster she sees in the background of him is a different demon. Mm -hmm. They have their own Necronomicon. Mm -hmm. um, they've got, like, all these different, like, uh, rituals that they can go through. Like, there's so much to this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, I, I, I want I, a physical printout of that book, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the final point about how this movie worked for me, where others do not, is that it got the mix exactly right in terms of knowing what to show and what not to show. Mm -hmm. And it manages a whole lot with just the idea of dread than what you actually see, but it still has a bit of the grotesque going on there when we have the psychic surgery scene <laughs> where they're taking that stuff out of her. I'm just like, oh, God, okay. We got to yeah, the I, can't show I, this, to... I can't show this to my friends because uh, the bag of teeth mm -hmm. would um, boot them right out of the movie. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I fucking love this movie so much. This one was the uh, sort of selfish pick for the list because this is not a classic. This is not even remotely well-known, even within the horror community. Like, the fact that the School of Movies Discord is a fan of this movie is the only coverage I know of it for it. There's some, like, YouTubers who cover every Netflix movie they can find in, like, 10-minute shots. Mm -hmm. You'll find some mention of this movie there. But it's absolutely fucking wondrously, like, constructed and built and... uh I'm so glad it exists. And it it's it reminds me of everything everywhere all at once in that like holy shit mm -hmm. way. But everything everywhere all at once found an audience. This did not find an audience. Mm -hmm. the, the director and writer have not gone on to do anything else. And it's only been two years since it released. They're probably working mm -hmm. on something. Mm -hmm. But like this is not the kind of movie that gets producers to sit up in their chair and give you money. <laughs> No, unfortunately not. But at the same time, I, I have to wonder to myself if it has something to do with how it was released. Like, I, it was it was at a film festival originally, but like, wasn't it made for Netflix? As far as I know, that is the only way to watch it in America. Yeah. I mm -hmm. somehow found a Blu-ray copy. Mm -hmm. It's not widely released at all. <laughs> oh. Speaking of that, I ended up having to go to an eBay seller from Sri Lanka in order to get a bootleg copy of The Princess when I found out that fucking Hulu was taking it off because you can't watch it otherwise unless they resell it to some other third-party uh, fucking streaming service. And after seeing that movie with Maureen, I was like, no, I'm going to want to watch that again. I need a fucking copy. So... <laughs> Yeah, I would also, uh, if we if we have wish lists right now, I would really like a Blu-ray set of Sense8 Netflix. Mm. <laughs> it's like yeah. you released all the Stranger Things seasons on Blu-ray. Stop being such fucking cheapskates. Considering how much I like the first two seasons of Sense8, I'm kind of mad at myself that I haven't gotten around to watching the climactic finale movie that they made. Uh, I really need to because I was thoroughly invested in that story. 
There, there might have been page, pacing issues with season one, but they were fucking cooking by season two. And some of mm. the stuff they did with, uh, you know, uh, pods fighting each other was incredible. Um, but that's what I expect from the Wachowskis as well. So to anyway. Wrap a bow that, on uh, this last film. Mm. The reason that we talk about it as much is because, as is clear, this is a film that will be forgotten by the people who own it. And unless people talk about it, the old ways will die. Yeah, no, (laughs) you ended it exactly the right way, sir. I can't put it better than that. So that was Greg's horror homework. If you like hearing me talk about my responses to horror movies, maybe we'll make this a regular thing. As mentioned, since finishing the 10 that I was assigned, I went on to see The Thing. I also saw, because again, Toby was pushing me, Ready or Not. Really, that's a good one. Both of those I rate as liked but we'll never need to watch The Thing again, and may watch Ready or Not again. I also went on to play Hellblade Sanua's Sacrifice. That I need was to play a that. Game, that. That was a game that, holy shit, that put me through the ringer. I'm yeah. not sure I'll be able to play it again, because it hit me too hard, but I hear there's a sequel, and I'm definitely going to play the sequel. Because I want to see what happens next. I also love anything with Norse mythology. And in some ways, there was stuff that Hellblade did that I wish was far more of a component of the... God of War games? God of War games. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm glad to have done it. But yeah, I can... That's another one that uh, Alex and uh, Sharon podcasted on. Yes, I. Yeah, it's almost like we get a lot of our media <laughs> checkout recommendations from a common source. Exactly. Uh, no, I played that one by. I played that one on my own. I'm a big fan of the studio. So I don't know. You know, maybe there will be more horror movies that I feel like I need to weigh in on. Goodness knows, I like talking about things with cool people. For now, uh, we've been talking for over three, three hours. At this point. Thank you so much for. It's fine. Uh, it's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's been such a pleasure to go through this all, to have you here with it as well. I think elevated this whole thing because uh, Greg and I would have like gone back and forth. But having one of the like instigators of this present <laughs> did really just make this a whole other thing. So thank you. This is one of my favorite shows we've done. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. I mean, I wasn't really like super invested in Greg enjoying horror movies. I'm just invested in people enjoying horror movies. Mm-hmm. And Greg, I think you're a people. Yes. <laughs> I can, well, I, I'm I'm a doge. So, you know, as yeah, you keep on reminding enough. me. Close uh, enough. <laughs> to finish off, because I'm not sure that we actually talked about it. Do you remember what happened that you and Alex got together to make this list to begin with? You say you're uh, invested in in people watching horror movies in general. Why me? Did I say something? Did I do something? It was indicated in conversations through the Discord that you were not a fan of horror movies. And mm-hmm. I do recall us having back and forths where I would like try and sell the concept of horror movies to you. Um, but, you know, it was just chit-chats on the Discord. And honestly, I do remember Alex, like, 
pitching the idea as like we should like set up a list of things for Greg to watch. But it was like I think that was like a couple months before he just like texted me in like the DMs one day. It's like, yo, let's just do it. And I'm like, yeah, sure, let's just do it. <laughs> if there's one thing that Alex really can't help himself with is that he loves putting together like categorizations and mm. neat like Jeez, lists. It's almost and things. like we're all neurodivergent or something. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I assume he's listening to this. We love you, buddy. <laughs> I don't know why. That's that was kind of like the perfect note for this to end. Yeah. On. Your send-off for the end of the old ways was good for the old ways, but that's as good a send-off for this entire conversation as anything. I need to take a break anyway, so the two of you have a great evening, and I'll see you around the Discord. Oh, uh, before while we're on this, I will just say uh, as a plug: make sure you check out Alejandra's most recent video on yes. the films that she watched in 2022. It's a great watch. Oh yes, yes absolutely. I completely They're... forgot to pitch my thing because I come out with videos like maybe once or twice a year. But yeah, new video on uh, the 200 movies I watched last year. You can find me on YouTube as Pluto Burns. Absolutely. I Both of us have watched you uh, go through the list now. There are definitely movies I'm interested in now as a result of you talking them up. Because I, I have to say, Alejandra, you're also very good at what you do. Like I keep on talking about Alex and Sharon because they're, it was being fans of them that led me to this entire community. But... Fuck it if I'm not there for your energy. So I will watch <laughs> anything that you put out there. Thank you. Take care, everyone. This is uh, us signing off. And jump scare! <laughs> jump scare! Bye-bye. So, after all that was said and watched, what do I take away from this experience? Putting these ten movies into context with all the other movies and stories I enjoy, and taking into account the experience of talking them through with friends... What greater understanding do I have about what I like, what I don't, and what scares me? Here's the big one. You don't know what you're going to learn from something until you watch it. Movies are marketed to people. That's the function of trailers and genres. They are trying to lure people in by showing them a taste and going, You like that? Well, give us cash and you can have some. And there are definitely some genre spices that I like more than others. But when someone shows me or tells me about a movie that is clearly saying, I am going to try and scare you, my tendency is to be turned off. There are some people that like the roller coaster ride of being scared, and that is not me. This doesn't mean that I don't like movies that scare me, but it depends on how it's doing that. There are certain things that I know I am disturbed by that make me disengage. Some of it is obvious, like being forced to experience the sustained terror and pain of someone especially when we know they are more likely to die than escape. That's a big component of a lot of slashers, and therefore was my reaction to Halloween. But even just kids being cruel assholes can trigger that for me as well, thanks to my own experiences as a kid. And when I am disengaged, or when I think I will be forced to experience something like that, then my reactions are to shut down till we get past that moment, turn the TV off, or in the case of cinema releases, maybe not to go see it at all. 
It's like the frog in a pot metaphor. Movies that turn up the horror quickly and intensely will tend to make me jump the fuck out. But if you turn up the horror more slowly, creepingly, I'll stay to watch a story that I'm invested in in spite of being scared. That does mean that the story and characters still have to be ones that I engage with. At this stage in my life, especially in this day and age where there are so many different media competing for attention, I value my time and want to use it doing something that will gratify me in some way. And no genre will do that on its own. It's why I appreciate media reviewers like School of Movies that help me make informed decisions. I would say they help solidify Guillermo del Toro as one of my preferred creators. But this experiment was still valuable, even regarding the movies that didn't work for me. For one thing, it's often a good idea to step outside your comfort zone or media tendencies. Sometimes you get an American werewolf in London, and sometimes you get a The Old Ways. And in the end, I got something out of both of them, even if I disliked one and loved the other. That's true even of other genres, and since getting together with Maureen, she got me to watch a bunch of movies I wouldn't have otherwise. Sure, maybe I bounced off Mamma Mia really hard, but I enjoyed Remember the Titans and Ever After, and loved Kubo and the Two Strings from minute one. Here's the big revelation, though. I don't like experiencing or revisiting fears that I can do nothing about. For the longest time, one of the movies that scared me the most was not a horror movie. It was Christopher Nolan's Memento, the movie that taught me to fear the fallibility of the human mind. But it's also one of my favorite movies, because of what it taught me. It's a touchstone, the standard, not the movie studio of what a movie can be to me under the right circumstances. You can even argue that under the School of Movies color wheel, I'm obsessed with Memento. And you might be right. I wouldn't say I hate the movie, per se. I mostly hate that it keeps ending up being relevant to my lived experience. It's the scar that I can't stop picking at. But any piece of media that teaches me something I can take forwards into the rest of my life is going to be lionized over the rest. There are a lot of movies out there that are just good, because they do a time-honored story in a well-crafted fashion. But every now and then you get a movie that surpasses that. It can be something big and sprawling, like Everything Everywhere All at Once, or Across the Spider-Verse. It can also be small and personal, like The Old Ways. I can't do anything about my past. I can't make kids not bully or reject me. I can't respond to the psychological damage inflicted on me as a child by my parents, especially when it was unintentional and without malice. And I definitely cannot control the trauma inflicted on others in real life, never mind that which happens to fictional characters. But seeing someone in a story survive their trauma and persevere is inspiring. It helps me to believe that I can do the same, and sometimes helps teach me how. If a story can make today and tomorrow better, then that is worth experiencing and sharing and talking about. Stories didn't just shape who I am as a person. They helped me to understand people, how to be in the world with them. But as mentioned at the beginning of this epilogue, 
I can't always know what stories will give me the fuel and the spark to help that process keep going. I have to be willing to, as my partner loves saying, open many boxes. This space will always be a place to talk about New Century. And why not? Because it's clearly got a lot to talk about. But it's also got that status because of the fuel Alex drew on to make those stories, grabbed from many, many movies and shows and other media. I, we, should dare to do the same. And try talking about more of the stories that shaped us and continue to do so. To finish up, I give you La Bamba, not the version you might have heard from rock and roller Richie Valens, but a more updated arrangement performed by the band Radio Jarocho for the old ways. Let's see what's out there. Beyond the Wind Door.
poesía Ya lo dijo el poeta con su poesía Que este son de la banda trae la alegría Ahí arriba y abajo Ahí arriba y abajo del corazón Ay, Merito, me duele Ay, Merito, me duele Por tu traición, por tu traición Por tu traición Por ti seré, por ti seré, por ti 